The following podcast is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and frank sexual content. This is the Heart of Jack's podcast. A six and a half year promise, the common ground for all LGBT people, and Jalen Ricks on coming out. I'm Paul Rosenberg, and this is episode 21 of the Heart of Jack's podcast. Brought to you by me and supported by people like you, patrons through Patreon. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com slash theheartofjacks. In September 1975, I was a freshman at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, a college town in an agricultural city with a flying ear of corn logo. I lived on the seventh floor of Stevenson Towers North, my dorm. I'd been there in my first home away from my family for a few weeks, long enough to have found the GCO, the college's gay community organization, where I met actually gay and lesbian people, and finally admitted that I, myself, was gay. I was 17 years old, and even after eight years of masturbating to fantasies of guys, always guys, being away from home and in the presence of actual queer people was like tasting cool water after a lifetime of wandering in the desert. It was exactly what I needed. I felt new power, community, and for the first time, safety, and I stopped pretending. I used the payphone on the dorm's main floor to call home. My mom answered. Hello? Hey, Mom. Hey, honey bunny. What's new? I think we made some small talk. I don't really remember, but it didn't take long for me to get to. I need to tell you something. Sure, honey. What's up? I didn't know at the time, of course, but she knew exactly what I was about to tell her. I'm gay, Mom. I'm gay. Tears were instantly running down my cheeks. Oh, honey, I know. It's okay. I love you. I'll always love you. Oh, Mom, I was so scared to tell you, to admit it at all, but it's true. It's okay, honey. I love you. And then she said, Just promise me you won't tell your father. He won't understand. He'll blame himself. And I'm thinking to myself, she's right. Of course he won't understand, but still, blame himself? That made clear that whatever she was saying, it was not okay that I was gay. At least, not to my dad. I agreed to not tell him. She asked me to promise, and I did. In that moment, with that promise, I defined a space where I would not be gay. At my dad's house, in my dad's car, anywhere my dad or stepmom or stepbrothers were. Even then, having begun my life as a gay man, a young gay man in the 70s, I'd set up a separate world where I would talk about dating girls who didn't exist, or just not talk about relationships at all. I had come out, but simultaneously identified a smaller closet where I would still be living a lie. I told myself, at least my whole life isn't a lie anymore. And a curtain of subterfuge fell between me and my father. Six years after that phone call, after coming out and making my promise, my father passed away at 53 years old. A series of heart attacks after a lifetime of heavy smoking. I kept my promise, 
I never told him I was gay. He knew nothing of my few boyfriends, my many casual encounters, my mentors, my rough lessons, my awakenings, all the ways that I was struggling and growing into a man. Although I am convinced that he actually knew that I was gay and was just suppressing what he couldn't compute. I don't really know that and I never will know. What was true was that my father was gone and with him, the one space where I was hidden. I experienced many things around the death of my father, but among them was this new reality. There was nowhere left for me to hide. From that moment forward, I would be myself, fully myself, without excuses or rationalization, in every place and with every person. I wasn't just out of the closet. I was closing that door and walking away for good. Coming out is the common ground of all LGBT people. It exists because every baby arrives with preloaded hopes, expectations, and assumptions by the wide, wide world outside of the womb, and millennia of evolution, but mostly the cultures that we're born into. Our external sex organs point to a future of likely roles, relationships, and responsibilities. And even in the 21st century, as woke as we may imagine ourselves to be, the likelihood of a penis haver developing into a heterosexual man and a vagina haver developing into a heterosexual woman translates to parents who expect a boilerplate of childhood behaviors, adolescent concerns, and, crucially, grandchildren. We arrive in our lives with an assumption, or at least an expectation or hope, of normal heterosexuality. And most of us progress under that assumption. Yes, there are exceptions, but if you were a newborn baby at some point, it is highly likely that the adults in charge of you fully expected you to be like most babies, heterosexual. Heterosexuality is literally normal. In the convention of the majority, the sexual orientation of most humans. And while many parents imagine that their children will be exceptional, this is one way that society conditions them and us to favor the conventional, to be like others, to not stray from the norm. Being queer often shows up before adolescence and receives different responses from our network of caregivers, but it is extremely rare that somewhere along the way we don't get some emotionally charged message that being unconventional in this particular way is not okay. We learn very early that we're supposed to adhere to the expectation of conventional sexuality and... Being children, we believe it, and we adapt. But sexual orientation, the innate map of attraction that we experience with the arrival of sexual impulses, doesn't seem to care about societal norms. As we experience sexual attractions, they either map to our learned expectations of who we were going to be, or they don't. And because of how we're impressed early on with the undesirable nature of deviating from sexuality norms, the first inklings often arrive with a thought— I'm different. The idea of different becomes increasingly laced with dread as our difference comes into focus. The adaptation that the great majority of queer people make is to simply deny our difference and, as much as possible, act normal. That becomes more or less crucial. The consequences of being different can be horrific, even fatal. There's the fear of disappointing our parents, of losing their love and support, but also real fear of being expelled from our families entirely or being damned for all eternity. For many of us, the outward revelation of queerness means being ostracized, victimized, imprisoned, or killed. 
At the very least, it means being alone, because we're different. It's heavy. Regardless of how dominant or subtle the messages of homophobia are in a child's life, the emergence of unconventional sexuality comes with a real threat of comprehensive harm. This is why there's a phenomenon that we call the closet. To protect ourselves from harm, from isolation and misery, we put those parts of ourselves that deviate from the norm inside the closet, and we only show the world the acceptable parts, the normal parts. Being in the closet means literally acting normal. And queer people are not normal. We are exceptional. The act of normalcy is at constant conflict with ourselves, which is why we talk about coming out as becoming authentic, being real, being true. Finding the courage to stop pretending and be who you actually are is at the core of queer experience, even as every other aspect of our lives may differ from our queer siblings. It's also a gift that we offer to everyone. The awareness that we are capable of pretending to be something that we are not, but to realize and remember that we are not the act and that it's possible to stop acting normal and simply be who we genuinely are, and that it's worth risking the loss of our closets to be real at last. I really wanted to talk with my friend Jalen about his coming out experience, since in some ways we're very much alike. But in so many other ways, our lives and stories are very, very different. But also because he works with men on precisely these issues, helping them to find their way back to themselves. I was not disappointed. Coming up next, Dr. Jalen Ricks and I talk about coming out. It's my extreme pleasure to welcome back to the podcast returning champion, Dr. Jalen Ricks. Speaker, author, and educator, Jalen Ricks holds a doctorate in education in sexology. He has taught at the University of Nevada, Reno, and the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality in San Francisco. He also has a private practice in Palm Springs, California, which includes personal consulting, body work, sacred intimacy, and surrogate-style partner experiences. He is a leading expert on the damaging effects of and recovery from ex-gay ministries and so-called reparative therapy. Jalen, welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> you do that so well. It's such a mouthful. I'm impressed. <laughs> it's fun. It is It is fun to just read something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little easier that way, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Before we jump in, let's do a quick check-in. Um, sure. What have you been up to lately? Well, um, honestly, I am still all aglow from doing my very first post-pandemic in-person retreat with a a dozen guys that all wanted to have their initial, not virginly, but pretty close to have their first uh, intimacy connection and sexual connections with other guys who are like-minded, you know, instead of like just jumping into scruff or whatever. They wanted to come together as a group to connect and make sure the quote-unquote new normal includes intimacy, includes touch, but also deal with the trauma of what we have been through the past couple of years. So 
Wow, oh wow, was it just incredible. So I'm still just riding high on this this afterglow of just having a whole four days of connection and intimacy. It's been incredible. That sounds just amazing. It sounds like something <laughs> that a lot of people might want to do right now. The hell you say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a little a little guidance out of the darkness. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so this was kind of an experiment. We were, you know, I had this date for other retreats on the calendar over a year, and we didn't even know if we'd be able to meet, but we decided to make it a small group, and that really helped with the safety, creating safety, you know, safe space. Uh, But now that we've done this, and we know that, you know, it can be done, and it's done safely, and et cetera, I'll be having others on the calendar. So I I hope to do uh, an intimacy retreat like this every four or five months, because I love it. You know, I come away just totally fed. So I want to share that. What is an intimacy retreat? Uh, it's basically a time where you you, you um, step away from your regular uh, routine and mm-hmm. particularly focus on that experience that, you know, it's sometimes hard for us to put our finger on, but you know, when you come away, you go, oh yeah, that was intimacy. You know, you can, you can see it like in a TED talk when someone might just give information and it feels a little dry or someone opens their heart and lays it out for you. You go, that was intimacy, right? Or it can be some something with a loved one. It might involve sex. It might not. But that experience, I've been doing a lot of research on it with a couple other colleagues. And there is a way to kind of whittle down to the precise almost equation on how to create an intimate experience. And I just want to share that. We talk about it. We do all kinds of experiences and all kinds of uh, exercises uh, to allow people to really open their hearts and have that experience of intimacy. I think you just gave me a topic for our next interview. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're going to do an intimacy show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, today um, we're going to talk about coming out. Um, that's okay. that's kind of the theme for this one. So just to start out super basic, uh, mm-hmm. coming out is short for coming out of the closet, right? Mm-hmm. And I think most folks know that it refers to gay people coming out of hiding. You yeah. know, the act or process of ending the pretense of being straight and admitting to oneself and to others that one is, in fact, a queer person. Right. Yeah. So that's like yes. the ground zero of what coming sure. out is. Right? Sure. Yeah. So what was coming out like for you? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Easy question. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I remember years uh, before puberty and then into puberty, probably up till 14, 15, that my experience of sexuality was very connected to nature. I lived next to a river with miles and miles of forest. So I would go down there and, and at times you know, run around naked. Uh, when I started to masturbate, I, that was my place to do it. And there was no sense that anything was wrong or anything was out of place. It just felt completely natural. Of course, yeah. I also grew up in a religious, very religiously conservative church environment. And so when these feelings started to surface even more, um, I began to hear things from the church. Of course, it was all negative. And that created a split. Uh, a split for me as to who I was on the outside as to pose who I, who I knew I was on the inside. And there is the closet born, right? And it wasn't until I, I just kind of what limited sex education I had, I just kind of, you know, I heard the boys experiment. So I figured that this was just a phase that would go away 
And yet when I got to college, I, I met a cute blonde boy and it was not going away. It was getting more pronounced and that caused a crisis. Luckily, I got into therapy with a good therapist, even though I was in a Christian environment. But I also wanted to get rid of this thing, how how evil yes. it could be. So I joined an ex-gay group or a reparative therapy, however you want to call it. It was called ex-gay back then. And yes. um, that didn't work. I'm giving you a very quick summary. Um, yes. Um, and in fact, I joke that going to an ex-gay group is what made me a sexologist because... When I saw so much misinformation and saw such, such deep closets, you know, these leaders who pronounce themselves straight for churches and getting money for the ministry would then in private say, oh, I have to think about guys to please my wife sexually. You know, (laughs) however you want to think about that hypocrisy, it didn't sound that straight to me. It didn't sound that straight. And when a friend committed suicide uh, because of all this, I kind of told God, if this is my lot in life, if this is how it's going to be for the rest of my life, I have to know how the other half lives. And so I put, quote unquote, I thought I put God on a shelf. And for one summer between sophomore and junior year in college, I saw how the other half lived. And I had been told that, that, you know, I would be drug addled and people would try to take advantage of me. And, you know, I'd be laying in a gutter someplace, demon possessed. And surprise, surprise, none of that happened. And in fact, I can remember, get a choke up. (laughs) I can remember... I remember the first time I was going to get fucked and beautiful dancer It's going to be a great experience. And, you know, I thought I was going to be, you know, at risk. And yet I had this amazing kind of distracting pleasure of feeling that God's presence was right there. And it wasn't like he was being a cheerleader or anything like that, but it wasn't like he was wagging his finger as a curmudgeon. God's presence was there. And it freaked me out, um, almost to the point where I'm like, could, could, can I have a little privacy here? But, you know, I had believed so much from the church about sexuality and experiencing the difference made me realize, oh, maybe there are other things that the church has told me that isn't true. And so for me, that was my coming out moment to myself. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it was a matter of years. You know, I was in the church. I was a singer, songwriter, contemporary Christian artist. And the church was my bread and butter. But over a period of time, as I learned to accept myself more and as I became stronger in my sexuality and that became integrated into my life with my spirituality on all the other aspects of my life, I eventually was honest with everyone. And I came out with my first CD and I called it The Sacred and the Queer. And uh, it was big wow. hit. Big hit in the gay community because they they don't they didn't there wasn't really anybody who would say yes I can be spiritual and sexual at the same time and here's a song about it so I I had my life my little musical fifteen minutes and it was wonderful so <laughs> um, but that that's basically my coming out I mean you know I eventually came out to my parents and that was a whew, that was a shit show but we've come a long way and. I wasn't the kind of person that needed to draw a line and say, well, if you don't accept me, we're never talking again. 
No, it's been a long, long ass conversation. Yes. And there's been good things that have come out of that. So many things came up for me while you were just talking. Um, uh, one of them is just the, that uh, first, there's 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 just like three components to coming out. There's coming out to yourself. Right. There's coming out to other people, and then there's coming out to your close family, to the yeah. not just to other uh, people. Yeah. There they are, yeah. But, but to the folks whose relationships are right. hooked into your identity. Yep. Um, the most critical relationships in your life. Yeah. And yeah. and also, you said it has been a real journey. It's been it has been a long process. And that sounds like it's still going on. That it's like, it starts and it doesn't ever really end. Oh, yeah. No. And, you know, it was actually interesting at this retreat last weekend. We used the coming out process as a model for our coming out of the pandemic. Um, Wow. And all the the, the parallels, being in a closet is a result of trauma. I realized I could not be who I was. So for survival, I had to hide parts of me. And even to this day in the world, there are places where you can be killed for being who you are, especially sexually. So I'm not suggesting, okay, everybody leap out of the closet because it's truly unsafe in some parts of the world. I would rather wish it was otherwise, but that's not the person's fault. That is society's fault to have these beliefs that would force people in the closet in the first place. But part of the coming out process is dealing with the trauma. We're learning a lot about trauma these days. It's kind of the new word. Yeah. You know, part of coming out is healing that trauma, however however you want to, you know, explore that. And, um, and I, to this day, find ways that I'm, you know, um, healing from that experience. You know, especially when it's a young, when you've had those experiences at a young age, you know, they become our core patterns and you know my core fear that pretty much I can find in just about every fear I have is that if (laughs) I am truly myself I will be utterly rejected by the loved ones that I hold dear and that that is my you know wherever I am whatever fear I might feel it's kind of an interpretation of that and that is really the core fear yeah that's really the core fear that the closet becomes necessary for right I have to hide my true self or I will be rejected or uh, hurt. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I'm in Palm Springs. I work with a lot of retired gentlemen and Mm -hmm. some of them are freshly coming out of the closet. Um, Some of them have been out of the closet for years and they're feeling like they have to be forced back in because of the assisted living spaces that they're they're moving into for retirement stuff. It's a real... Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> head fuck <laughs> for yes. people who have, you know, have lived openly and outwardly, you know, and sacrificed so much for all of us. And suddenly just because they need assisted living they they don't feel safe. They don't feel like they can um, uh, be who they are because they need help. And thank God in Palm Springs, there's a lot of places they get that. And they're, you know, they go out of their way to make sure people feel welcome, regardless of their orientation. But, um, wow, it's, we are always challenged with, you know, and even straight people, you know, especially with sexuality, (laughs) you can call it a curse or a blessing if gay people get to come out about their sexuality, that coming out is about your sexuality. If it wasn't that I suck dick, um, there'd be no issue, right? And some people call that a curse. I think it's a blessing 
But in some ways, straight people have to come out about their sexuality, too. And yes. not just about being hetero, but about, you know, being into whips or being into toys or whatever that case is. And it, as best I can tell, I, I don't know the straight experience, but it sure looks like a lot harder for them than it is sometimes for us. And that's totally relative, but... You know, maybe I spend so much time in the gay ghetto, it seems normal to me. But boy, I know a lot of straight people who could never, never even talk to their partner about what they want sexually. That is a coming out. And that is a trauma from feeling like you have to hide. Well, you know, it makes sense to me that straight people would also benefit from a coming out process just because the, the fundamental thing that's going on is you're in conflict with your your fundamental self with your true self and that's counter to whatever the the predominant narrative is the story of what a relationship or what sexuality or what humanity is supposed to look like according to some standard um, right right and conformity that, yeah yeah so so why shouldn't a quote unquote straight person also be out of sync with the standard narrative. Yeah. And, you know, we know that as life goes on, chances are if you spend a lot of time with your sexuality, it evolves. It changes. Yes. There, who you were 20 years ago is very different from who you are today. And your sexuality can be that way, too. So well, sure. there is a coming out about the changes in your sexuality and nothing wrong with that. But yes. again, we always have that fear. Oh my gosh, if I really tell someone what I want or who I am or what really turns me on, they're going to utterly reject me. And unfortunately, too often in the society, that is the case. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't the core lesson of coming out just be your authentic self and have yeah. the courage to be that authentic self out yeah. in public? Yes. Yes, it is. And it's so I think a lot of people assume if I were myself, I'd be fragile, I'd be vulnerable, I'd be weak. And it's actually the opposite. We tend to think that we can't really be that or that we're insecure because we get so little practice at yes. actually being ourselves. But the great thing is, like a muscle, the more I, I talk about intimacy as if there are doors on your heart. And, you know, when we feel when we feel safe enough and that's probably key to coming out too. you got to find sure. a safe space. That's yes. so key. You can open those doors of your heart more and more and more. And, you know, if we were all, if we all had an ideal upbringing or something, we wouldn't have those doors at all. We would just be us, right? We could just be us. And I think there are people in the world that are like that, that don't even understand, like, what? Armor? Hiding yourself? What are you talking about? I'm just me. And they've had such practice at doing that, you know. God bless them. You know, I wish there were more of us. There are more of them. But we, most of us need more practice at being ourselves and fi finding safe spaces to do that is really, really key. That would be your prime. You know, if someone wants to know, how do I come out? That's your first step. Find a safe space. Yeah. So here's something I wonder about, because I don't know that I know anybody like this, but have you ever encountered queer people who say that they never had to come out, that they, you know, never had the assumption of heterosexuality to begin with? Yeah, I I know they're out there. <laughs> and, um, 
And it's interesting, you know, if, if there were, I'm sure there are situations where they were accepted so early on and it never was in question that it seemed completely natural. But I also think that there's got to be some point, you know, even for straight people, there's some point, even though that's completely acceptable, you know, quote unquote, mm -hmm. it's the majority, whatever, there's a point at the day that it happens that maybe some beautiful young girl you know says she has a boyfriend at school you know even though they're like in third grade or whatever that uh -huh. is a that is a step of acknowledging that i am a sexual being so mm -hmm. i you know may, maybe that kind of coming out maybe it could be just so subtle and so simple that you don't even think about it but i think it is a kind of coming out uh, I, I think you know it takes courage and i don't even know if this is you know, because parents show awkwardness about sexuality, but for a child to just naturally say, oh, you know, Mary's my girlfriend or, you know, Toby's my boyfriend to say that, you know, I don't know. It, it's perfectly natural. Um, and I suppose if a child says that about someone who is their same gender and the parents don't even blink an eye, that would be a very minimal coming out, but it's a coming out yeah. still. So I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, don't I, know. I had a conversation with Dr. Joe Court not too long ago. Yeah. And he, he said something that I, you know, it was amazing to me that it hadn't occurred to me before. But he said before he realized he was gay, he really thought he was straight. It wasn't even a question. Because, right. uh, because right. in his family, in his culture, there's an assumption of heterosexuality. Yes. That's yes. the default setting, right? Yes, that is. That is correct. Yeah. So, of course, to, to come out about your same gender attractions if that's an accurate term, that's a step of courage. That's a step of yeah. courage. And, you know, but I know, I know plenty of people who are so um, uncomfortable, who have families so uncomfortable about sexuality, talking about anything sexual is a real step of courage. I don't want to devalue, uh, you know, the challenges that sexually different people have to go through mm -hmm. to um, to just feel good about themselves. I'm certainly, yes. you know, saying, oh, straight people have the same thing because it's not. It's it's different. But yes. um, I think all that speaks to is that we need environments, mainly parents who are educated enough that won't freak out when we talk about um, the uh, about sexuality. And they're educated enough to know that a gay person is just as gay or lesbian or transgender is just as wonderful and beautiful as anybody else. When I was when I was in grad school, I kind of became sexual in the gay ghetto. So I was not really used to being around women. And here I'm in grad school with all kinds of people. And mm -hmm. I remember two different times uh, there were women that were at the institute that were pregnant. And somehow in the conversation, it came up. Oh, so-and-so, what happens if your baby comes out and they're gay? And without missing a beat, both of them just just said, that would be the most wonderful thing in the world. And I'm like instantly in tears. I'm like, where? I want to be part of that family. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. so beautiful. It was so beautiful. And it's over time, more and more and more people are, you know, educated and having kids that are loved and accepted for who they are. And I think that's beautiful. One more little story about that. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, when I was at University of Reno teaching, I had a um, class of 100 kids, 100 mm -hmm. students, excuse me, they're not, they're not kids. 
And um, some of them were adults and parents and everything. But um, 100 students. And I asked the question, so how many of you... And 100 made it very easy to like do surveys. Yes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> no kidding. I asked the question, how many of you have had any conversation of real meaning about sexuality with your parents? 85% of them had not. Had yes. not. It just crushed me that, what? What? I thought we were doing better. But granted, you know, this was a group of mainly Catholic and um, mainly Hispanic. So, you know, that's that speaks something about the, the degree of comfort that sure. families might have talking about. And, you know, culturally, there is a, a certain amount of acceptance of uh, gay kids or gays and lesbian and even transgender kids, but they don't talk about it. We don't talk, that's, that's Joey's friend. They lived together for 20 years, but they don't ever really talk about sex. So, yes. you know, you know there, 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 there are gradations to that question that, you know, just asking one question doesn't necessarily give you all the information. But still, I'm like, oh, parents, please talk to your kids about sexuality, please. So anyway. My husband works in an assisted living facility. Uh, yes. he, he works in several. He, he like contracts and plays music. And uh, he's he's become very good friends with many of the residents. And this one guy, Jack, uh, who's just adorable and Eric loves him. And he always comes up and says, how's your friend? How's your friend? <laughs> <laughs> and he always calls me his friend. And, and Eric, I've trained Eric to always say, uh, that's my husband. And uh, he's doing great. Um, and, and Jack is always, he has no problem with it. It's just his language is, yes, his I'm language his friend. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. And I'm sure that, you know, the fact that he's courageous enough to, to ask you that question, I'm sure he's oh, yeah. thinking that to call him friend is a very compassionate way to describe him because he doesn't necessarily want to put your husband on the spot, like, oh, no. husband or whatever, you know. So he calls it friend, you know, it's fine. Yeah. But yeah, fascinating. fascinating. Jack's a great guy. I, I, I've cool. met him several times. Um, it's just the language he uses. Right, right. And, you know, I think... You know, it was very pivotal in my coming out with my parents to, I'm going to get choked up again, <laughs> to um, realize if we are going to salvage this relationship at all. I mean, because I came out to them and it was very, you know, wailing and gnashing of teeth. Wow. Um, some things were said that were very hurtful yeah. that have now since been apologized and truly forgiven and all that. But um, it was rough. And then about five years of us constantly arguing, constantly, you know, them throwing Bible verses and wanting me to go to this thing yeah. and that thing, which I'd already done. But because they were not part of that experience, it would seemed invalid to them. Right. So eventually, about after five years, it was like Eve, I didn't even want to visit them. You know, their house was not a safe space. And so I finally kind of put my foot down and realized if, you know, unfortunately, I would have liked to have learned unconditional love from my parents. I think that's the way it's supposed to be in this situation. That is not what's happening. Yes. And if I expect my parents to love me unconditionally, because Lord knows I'm trying to change them. Right. I want them to accept me. 
I'm going to have to be the one to live by the example and love yeah. them unconditionally. But I did play, I had to also do boundaries. And so I had to, yes. I had to only visit them at 48 hours at a time because I can't take it any more than that. And I, for a long period of time, put a moratorium on talking about religion or talking about sexuality. Sure. And I acknowledge that that's going to make our relationship incredibly shallow. But if we're going to keep love the focus and I want to do that, Let's just not talk about it. I wouldn't do that for anybody else in the whole fucking world. But because they brought me in and they got me going to life, I feel that I want to keep this connection. I want to be there for them in later in life when they can't care for themselves. So I'm willing to do this for them. I don't censor myself. If, you know, I have a boyfriend, I tell him about him. I bring him to the house and things like that and it drives him fucking crazy. But who cares? And, <laughs> um, you know, in these situations... It is true that sexuality somehow trumps compassion, and we got to show them it's different than that. That you can be yourself and be compassionate for people who don't understand. Because in my opinion, that's what compassion is for. It's not easy, and it infuriates me sometimes, but uh, I've also, we've also come a long, long way, and I'm very, very proud of that relationship. Well, you said pretty clearly you what you wanted was unconditional love, but yeah. what they're offering is some very strict conditions. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, nobody's perfect at doing unconditional love. You know, the no. unconditional part is sometimes even a little, you know, we're sort of talking about perfection and that's a that's an illusion. So yeah. I have to recognize they are doing the best they can with what they have. Yes. Um, are they stubborn? Oh, oh, hell yes. But, you know, there you go. One piece of your story that has always touched me, and I've heard this for years since, you know, I've known you for a while, is that early connection before any of the uh, fundamentalism, that early connection to a positive experience of your body, of sexuality, of being connected to nature. Um, yeah. that's, that's something I personally have an experience of as well, although it's different from yours. Just yeah. the idea that before all the shit got piled on, I had kind of this essential touchstone of this is a good thing. This is this yeah. is fundamentally really good and unsullied. Yeah. yeah. Felt good in our bodies before we even knew that we could dissect ourselves. Oh, my body's over here. My emotions are over there. My intellect's over there. No, I just was me. Just me feeling yeah. good, feeling good with my penis. Well, and, don't um, you think don't you think that gives you an anchor into sanity? Yes, uh, it has. Kind of, yes, yeah. it has. Yeah, totally. Um, so then there are people who, a lot of people, unfortunately, who have experienced childhood sexual abuse. Right. <laughs> That's exactly where my mind went to. However, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and it just breaks my heart yes. that those first time experiences of sexuality can be so confusing. Yes, um, forever. Yeah, forever. It, it becomes a lifetime you know? struggle. Oh, it's so rough. And, you know, I'm I'm so impressed with the people who have just really dug into those experiences, at, you know, with a therapist or trauma recovery, you know, because it's very confusing to look back on some of your first time experiences and be truly innocently aroused by them, but then also feel totally violated by them. What yes. kind of confusing is that, right? So they have really done the work to go back there and be able to kind of pull things apart 
and uh, recognize what was the violation, but also recognize how your body works naturally to provide you pleasure. And that it, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the violation. And it sounds confusing me just saying it right now. Yes. Yes. So, um, yes. you know, for them to do their work and regain their sexual being as their own without trauma, or even, you know, some of them have, it's fascinating, some of them have taken elements of those first-time experiences because they can be very arousing and they can... I'll say manipulate the memories or manipulate mm -hmm. the arousals that they have now to just, you know, supercharge their sexuality yes. despite the abuse. And, yep. you know, more power to them. Oh, my gosh. It's so yeah. incredible. It's like they take charge. They take charge totally. of their lives. They take charge yeah. of their experiences. Yeah. It's own that sexual being. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. What else? <laughs> <laughs> Wind me up and let me go. <laughs> So who or what is inspiring Ooh. you these days? What, what's inspiring to you? So I don't know if you've seen it, but um, there is a stage show that has been made into a television show for Hulu called Derek Delgado's In and of Itself. Ooh. And it's a one-person show. And uh, Stephen Colbert and his wife saw the stage show and were moved so much that they foot the bill to have a film made of the show. Wow. And and when, when and I just, ha I like to watch, the, you know, he makes me laugh, I get my news from it, you know? Yes. And I just watch the segments on YouTube, and when they were going, when the show was coming on Hulu, the day before, Stephen Colbert had Derek Delgado and the director, Frank Oz, which is great all by itself, had mm -hmm. them on his show. He introduced them, introduced the show, and then there's this long pause. All three of them were silent. And Stephen goes, I have to say, this is the first time I've had guests on my show to promote something, and I can't really tell you anything about the show. You just have to see it. Wow. And I that's was like, very intriguing. That's intriguing, yeah, that you actually couldn't even say anything about it. And the next day I saw it, and it just blew my mind. And I can't really say much about either, but because uh, I want the experience to be special too for anybody listening. But I can say, you know, I'm into intimacy. I'm into authenticity and vulnerability. And, you know, you think people, you know, just watch TV this, watch TV that, go to a stage show, go to this stage show, go to this musical. I saw people in that audience, I'm going to get choked up again, people in that audience so craving intimacy and authenticity and the things he did on stage were so simple so so simple and they were eating out of his hand I was floored I've watched it probably a dozen times I have oh, to get wow. on my friends I'm like oh my god we have to watch this together and I really hope that it, it creates almost like a whole genre of stage productions that so subtly and so safely include the audience that everybody comes out feeling heard and seen and touched and fed that intimacy we all want. And it's mind-blowing that it comes from a 90-minute stage show. So 
That there's how's how's that for a recommendation? <laughs> that's great. It's that's great. Beautiful. It's yeah, that's, beautiful. That's inspiration and recommendation wrapped up yeah. in one. Oh so. wow, man. Yeah. So check it out. And you, even if you don't have Hulu, it's worth the fourteen bucks just to get it Hulu for a month. I, oh, I promise uh, you. I, we got it. We got it. We'll, <laughs> oh, we'll do good. it. Thank you right. so much, uh, John. Sure. It is always such a pleasure Yay. to talk to you. Next time we'll talk about intimacy. I'd love to. Thank you so much. Wonderful. See ya. I want to thank Jalen Ricks for joining me on the podcast to talk about coming out, and I'm looking forward to having him back soon. Links to everything we talked about are in the show notes. Before I wrap up, I want to again reach out to those of you who have gone to jack-off clubs. I'm looking for men to interview about their experiences with group masturbation, and I'm specifically looking for men who have gone to clubs other than Rain City Jacks here in Seattle. I've already interviewed several men from my own club, and I want to spread the wealth. I especially want to talk with you if you are not white, not gay, or not American. The jack-off phenomenon has existed around the world for decades, and I need to get out of my backyard, out of familiar territory, and tell the story of men who love masturbating with their fellow men in other parts of the planet, and with lives that don't look like my own. Seriously, if you love getting off with other guys, and you're not a white, gay guy in the Pacific Northwest, I want to hear from you. Go to theheartofjacks.com slash jacksinterview and complete a short survey for me. Again, go to theheartofjacks.com slash jacksinterview. That web address, just one more time for good measure, theheartofjacks.com slash jacksinterview to complete the survey and help me tell the story of the jacks. As always, I love hearing from you. Your feedback, questions, and comments can reach me several ways. Email podcast at theheartofjacks.com, find me on Twitter at theheartofjacks, or call 206-580-3120. The Heart of Jacks podcast, written and produced by me and made possible entirely by people like you patrons through Patreon. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com slash theheartofjacks. Theme music is Carouselophane by Jake Bradford Sharp. Podcast distribution by Simplecast at simplecast.com. Until next time, that is the Heart of Jacks podcast. I'm Paul Rosenberg. You know something, Lady Aberlin? What, Daniel? I've been wondering about something myself. Something about Mr. Skunk? Something about mistakes. What is it? I've been wondering if I was a mistake. If you were a mistake? (laughs) What do you mean, Daniel? Well, for one thing, I've never seen a tiger that looks like me. No. And I've never heard a tiger that talks like me. No. And I don't know any other tiger who lives in a clock. No, neither do I. Or loves people. Oh, Daniel. Sometimes I wonder if I'm too tame. Sometimes I wonder if I'm a mistake. 
I'm not like anyone else I know When I'm asleep or even awake Sometimes I get to dreaming that I'm just a fake I'm not like anyone else Others I know are big and are wild I'm very small and quite tame Most of the time I'm weak and I'm mild Do you suppose that's a shame? Often I wonder if I'm a mistake I'm not supposed to be scared, am I? Sometimes I cry and sometimes I shake Wondering isn't it true that the strong never break? I'm not like anyone else I know fine as you are I really must tell you I do like the person that you are becoming when you are sleeping when you are waking you are my friend it's really true I like you crying or shaking or dreaming or breaking there's no one mistaking it you're my best friend I think you are just fine as you are I really must tell you I do like the person that you are becoming when you are sleeping when you are waking you're not a fake, you're no mistake, you are my friend. I wonder if I you am are a just mistake. fine as you are. I'm not like anyone I really else. must I tell you I do when I'm like or the even Sometimes I get to dreaming that when I'm just a fake. I'm not when like you are waking, you are my friend. Others really I know true. are big I and are wild. Like I'm very small and quite tiny. Or shaking, or Most of the time, I'm There's weak no and I'm lying. Do you suppose that's a shame? I wonder if I'm a just fine as you are. I'm not supposed I to be Sometimes I shake, wondering isn't it true that the strong never break? I'm not like anyone else. No, I'm not like anyone I think you are just fine, exactly the way you are. The way I look? Yes. The way I talk? Yes. The way I love? Especially that. You don't think I'm a mistake? 
You're the tiger I love most in this whole universe. Oh, thanks, Lady Evelyn. I love you too. It's already smelling better here, isn't it? Yes, it is. I'll go over and see how things are at the castle. Thanks for being my friend. Thank you for being mine. It works both ways, doesn't it? <laughs> Good things usually do. Mm -hmm. Bye.